0: open your Bible to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. And um, we are in our fifth week in the book of Titus. We're in our fourth week in specifically talking about elders in the church. Now, Paul, he, he wrote this book to Titus on this small little island of Crete. Uh, in the, the um, Currently, it's a part of Greece. And he wrote it to give encouragement, to give instruction to Titus as he has left Titus there in that place for a reason, for a purpose, to finish a work in which he had started, which he had been working on. But, call, but Paul was called away, uh, taken away by the Spirit to a different place. And uh, Paul wasn't taken away in chains like he, he usually was, but he was taken away by the Spirit to a different location. And so Paul writes back to Titus, to encourage, give instruction, and to give instruction about very specific things in the church, churches in Crete. And one thing that the churches of Crete were lacking was something very important, and so he starts his letter off after his fairly lengthy introduction, and he starts talking about leadership in the church, the importance of a, a leadership structure in the churches of Crete. So the uh, The church structure is important. The scripture does have some clear things to say about it. And this is what we are spending our time looking at here in Titus over these last four weeks. Now, the way that the church is structured, it is an important thing. It has quite a bit of relevance into how a church functions. But also in the way the church labels offices in the church, I think that is important as well. Now, there are some churches, and even including some Baptist churches that no longer use the same kind of terminologies or the structures in which we find inside of the Scripture. And sometimes these churches, they use deacons as, I would call them, pseudo-elders. They maybe use trustees or they have a board. And they don't use the same terminologies or the same structures in which we find in Scripture. And this structure that we find here in Titus chapter 1. And... Why churches don't do this, why they don't operate this way, there's a variety of reasons why. But the scriptures, I think, give clarity into the titles, the labels, and the structures in which we should use for oversight in the church. And this is what Paul is dealing with. So the, the physical oversight of the church and the spiritual oversight of the church, I think Paul clearly teaches that there should be eldership in the church. Now, a plurality of elders is what we see modeled again and again through Paul's writings, through other writings of the New Testament. And we see that here in Titus. We also see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you go back to the left in your Bible, you'll find the, the writings to Timothy. And Paul, again, in 1 Timothy 3, he is giving specific instruction about overseeing or eldership in the church. And a church that is wanting to be a healthy church must have healthy structures, healthy labels. And this is why Paul emphasizes this right off the bat into his letter to Titus. And very soon into his writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Now here at First Baptist of Independence, we have a plurality. Of elders in this church, but that has not always been the case of our church. This is actually fairly recent into the 151 years of our existence. Uh, Eldership is something quite new into our practice, Uh, and I'm not sure exactly if it goes back farther to where eldership was established in the church. It seems to be from some of our documents, and then it switched over to a pastor, deacon kind of leadership, and then about seven, eight years ago, it transitioned back into a plurality of elders in this church. Now, maybe you have been here for 150 years. Doubt it. Um, or maybe, maybe you're coming from a church that uh, has not had eldership. Maybe you are coming from no church background. You have no idea even what elders are. Uh, maybe the only experience you have with elders are the Mormons that show up on their bicycles at your house. And it says, elder so-and-so. Uh, That is not the same thing at all, what we're talking about today. So Paul, he gives instruction about leadership in the church, specifically to the oversight of the church. And so maybe you're coming from a background that has never had that in your experience. And it's been my hope to give some clarity into what does this mean? What does elders mean? What is the qualifications of elders? So we spent... Several weeks over these few passages in verses 5 through 9, which we're going to read again in its entirety, and then we're going to spend some time in verse 9 specifically to see what Paul has The final thing he says in verse 9 is that elders must be teachers. They must teach. And what kind of teaching should they give? Well, he defines that as well in verse 9. So let me take you back back to verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus, and we'll go through verse 9. Paul says, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must be, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined." he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it now before we get into verse 9 i need to do a bit of a homework check for you cuz last week in verse 8 i challenged you with something out of verse 8 Because, as I've been saying through this study of eldership, is that these qualifications that are there for elders are must be's, but they're also should be's for the average Christian. So, one of the things that should be in your life as the average Christian is hospitality. So, last week I challenged you, over the next two weeks—that was from last week—so we're only in one week now—challenged you to invite people to your house, maybe an individual or a group of people and people that you don't know. Again, exercising what real hospitality is, which extends past friends or family, but into strangers and people that you don't know. So the question for you is, how is that going? How is that going for you? Did you hear the sermon last week and you think, yeah, yeah, that's that's what people should be doing. Yeah, people should be inviting other people to their house and yeah, that's what they should do, but I'm not one of those someones. Was that your thought, or or was there some conviction, and you're like, yeah, I, I need to be doing this. This is something that is good. It's right. It's something I need to make different plans for. I need to make different preparations for. So how has that been going? Did you start to prayerfully consider who should be who should be asked? Who, who are the ones that maybe you need to engage? Who are the ones that maybe you just don't know and, and you need to make some headway into knowing who they are? I also challenged another group last week because I said there's kind of two groups that, that I'm speaking to. One that needs to make the invitation to people. Then there's another group that maybe you are really in a place where you, you just can't and you don't have the ability or whatever the reasons might be. But for you in that group have you freed up yourself so that you can say yes to the invitation? Can you say yes to the invitation that's given to you to, to come over to cook or whatever, and, and you, you're willing to go? And maybe you can decide what toppings are on that pizza. I don't know. But the, the thing that we need to think about is, one, am I being hospitable to others? And two, am I reciprocating that by going when I'm asked? And so, did you reprioritize your schedule? Did you uh, look at what you had going on in your life and say, you know what, I need to probably not do those things and maybe free up this day that I've been asked to, to go over to this person's house uh, and to have some real fellowship with this person? Now, once again, these, these principles that we find here out of Titus 1 about elders are should-bes for us as well as individual average Christians. These are should-be's for us. And so it's not limited. The practice of hospitality is not limited to eldership. It's not limited to only the elders do this in the church. This is for the church to practice. So let's get busy being hospitable. Let's do this good work of being hospitable to one another. And if you need help in that process, if you are kind of stuck and you just don't know what to do, you don't know how to engage other people, you don't know what to cook, you, whatever the problem is, we are here, here to help you. Your elders are here to help you. If you need, to me, me, need me to make a menu for you, I can do that. It would be pretty simple. Um, mac and cheese, that always works well at my house. We want to help you as elders, as staff. We want to equip you. We want you to succeed. We want you to be successful. We want you to have a good experience so that you see the benefit and You want to do it again. And this becomes a natural, organic thing in your life that you're constantly having people in your home or going to other people's home. And we are really being hospitable and showing the love for each other that we should do as Christians. So with all of that, let me get to verse 9. Now, again, I haven't wanted to put a burden on you. I wanted to actually help you in that. So let's get to verse 9 and see a very specific qualification to elders. And this is the only qualification that is directly related to the office of elders. And that is this final qualification Paul gives to Titus, and that is to teach. They must be teachers. Elders must be teachers. They must be ones that can give instruction to the body. And they must be ones that have an understanding. And that understanding must be sound, as Paul would say, sound in doctrine. Now, These other things that we've seen through verses 5 through 8, they can be universally applied. They should be. They should be evident in your life. They should be happening. But specifically to elders, verse 9 is what distinguishes them into this office of eldership. They should be teachers, specifically. So Paul, he writes to Timothy and and gives instruction there in 1 Timothy 3. And in verse 2, he they must be able to teach. Not only should an elder be able to teach, but he also must teach with sound doctrine. And that's what verse 9 of Titus 1 tells us. So let's look closely at verse 9 and see the phrases in which Paul uses and discover what he is communicating to us today. And the first thing he says is, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hold firm. As the same idea as we just sang about holding fast. That God will hold fast to us, and that means to cleave to, to, to hang on to, and to do it with endurance. It's not just a quick, like, grasping a bat and then letting it go once you've hit that ball. No, there's an endurance that is there, a cleaving to, holding to, and elders should be cleaving to what? The trustworthy word with endurance. So the question becomes, what is the trustworthy word What is the trustworthy word that the elders should cleave to, hang on to? Well, let me take you back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and go ahead, you're real close, so go ahead and turn there. Verse 8 through verse 11. Paul gives, I think, some definition here of what he's talking about even in Titus. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. "...realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are, are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and worldly, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, homosexuals, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." So Paul is teaching here that the law is good. The law is good, but whose law is it? Is this Paul's self-imposed, self-created, self-commanding law? Is it his? Of course not. Whose law is he referring to? It is the law of God. God's law. The law of God is good. God's law leads us to understand that we have been what Paul has just been describing as lawless and disobedient. We fit into that category in how we've been behaving, how we've been thinking, what our attitudes, actions, emotions, we fit into that category. And Paul then tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of humanity. All of humanity finds himself in the exact same place with God. And what is that place? Guilty before him because of the law in which he has established. His law is perfect. And we have been far from it. Let me take you back to 1 Timothy 1. I have been entrusted. So Paul says here that the law leads us to something. The glorious gospel. The gospel is that word that we use that describes the good news. The good news of what or of who Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, that he lived a completely perfect life in every thought, every word, every deed. And then what did he do? He gave his life, dying on a Roman cross as a substitutionary atonement for your sin. But he did not stay in the grave. Three days later, he was resurrected, proving that he had defeated death and defeated hell Now, without the law of God, the gospel message doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Without the law and understanding the law, it's really confusing. What do we mean by Jesus died on the cross for our sins? What do you mean by my sins? Without the understanding that the perfect creator, God, has established a right and a good design for this universe, that He has written out laws and given those laws to us, if we do not understand those things, we will not understand the eternal, perfect payment that was made for us. If we do not understand the offense in which we have had against God, we cannot under, understand the forgiveness of which we have been given. We would not understand why Jesus had to come to die, why he gave himself for us, we would not understand what has been accomplished and how we've been rescued. We would not understand any of these things unless we had the law. If you want further explanation of that, read the book of Romans. And Paul deals with that idea. The law must be present. It must be present for us to understand the great need that we have for Jesus, our Savior. So what is the trustworthy word of Titus 1.9? What is it that Paul is, is saying that the elders must teach, what they must cleave to, hang on to? Well, it's the full teaching of the law of God. The full teaching of it. What does it do? It leads us to understand how good the news of Jesus really is. Now this word that has been passed down, Through the prophets and through the law of the Old Testament is then is realized and fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. And in that fulfillment of the law of the prophets, it's now right here in Titus. It's being written out, told to Titus into the churches of Crete. It's being passed on to them. The other apostles are giving their writings to the early church so that they would do the same thing. Pass on the trustworthy word. And now for us today, what do we have in front of us? This book that has 66 books in total that teach us, lead us into all that we need to know, all that we need to understand. Not just of how we are saved, of the Bible. The entirety of it. Now, why do we need to do this? Well, go back to verse 9. And Paul gives two reasons why the elders need to think this way and act this way about teaching. He says, so that... He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And two, also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders should have a mature understanding, a mature knowledge of the Scriptures. And they should also possess an ability to then explain it to others. This is what it means for them to be teachers. Not just ones that have the knowledge, but can actually dispense the knowledge to others. The knowledge that an elder possesses, it's only good if it gets out. And so the elders' understanding, the the elders' uh, comprehension of the Scriptures, it needs to be a deep and wide understanding. A deep and wide understanding. That knowledge that they have needs to be clearly and effectively communicated to the church body. Elders don't have to teach publicly for this to happen. But he should be able to teach in private. He should be able to teach in small groups. He should be able to disciple. He should be able to, if need be, publicly teach. Some elders are, are gifted differently than others. And just as you are gifted differently than others, you have different skill sets and different, different uh, uh, talents and abilities God has given you. And those all play out inside of the church, or at least they should be being exercised in the church. And the same thing is true about elders, and so some just do a better job in different scenarios. Some do a better job in maybe one-on-one, or small groups, or uh, in public speaking. But the elder's understanding of the Old Testament should not be out of balance with the New Testament, and vice versa. His grasp upon the overall themes of the Bible, they are essential so that he can properly communicate and accurately communicate what is the Bible teaching. And what this does, it helps form his doctrine and the church's doctrine. Now, doctrine is a word we kind of throw around in Christian circles and in church, and we don't really explain, so let me give you a definition. Doctrine simply means principles or positions of a belief system. Okay? Principles or positions of a belief system. Now, if there's misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of the Old Testament themes, there will be, as a result of that, a misinterpretation of the New Testament. And so an elder cannot detach himself or, or set aside the Old Testament and think that he can actually teach the New Testament. It will not happen. It, it just won't. And so you can't think that way either, that, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. In meaning that you don't need the Old Testament anymore. That, that is not accurate. That is not true. And so elders should not think that way. We should not display that. That should not be our example to the church. An elder should not get things out of balance in Scripture. That is in Scripture. And there's quite a bit of that in the Scripture. Now this can be about maybe a specific doctrine or maybe about an attribute of God. And maintaining that emphasis, maintaining that tension is important. For example... If there's an overemphasis of God's love, and we only focus on that, and we only build upon that, and we ignore other attributes of God, we will eventually distort God. And we see this today. We see this in preaching. We see this in, in curriculum. We see this in music, a distortion of God because of a denial of other parts of God. Now, this can happen very subtly, very subtly to the elder, but also to you, to you as you're doing your own private Bible study and you're doing your small group stuff and and you're hearing sermons and sometimes you can just shut your brain off to other things of God and you begin to have a distortion of God. And this is why Paul urges elders to hold firmly, hold fast to the trustworthy word, the completeness of the law, of the prophets, of Jesus Christ And one of the major problems throughout human history has been the distortion of God's Word, the abandonment of God's Word. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we see God giving clear word to Adam and Eve, and then a clear distortion of what God had purposed. This is the same thing that's happening in Crete, and the same thing that's still happening today. The elders of a church, they must be vigilant against the distortion of God's Word. The Bible. It should be seen, it should be treated as what it truly is, and that is the authoritative, that means it, it's over us, we come under its authority, and that it is the inerrant word of God. Now, when the scriptures are treated as something less than that, when they're treated as less than authoritative, less than inerrant, then the church will be put on a path to liberalism. And I don't mean liberalism in the sense that it has, you now have the liberal political views, but what I mean is that there's a rejection of orthodox Christian belief. Now, orthodoxy, that's a word we don't use a lot. Um, but orthodoxy means what is generally viewed or accepted as right or true. It is an established or a, a, an approved belief. And so we say, well, that's orthodox Christianity. Now, the problem with that statement about what's orthodox, what's orthodox Christianity is that all Protestant churches would be accused of rejecting Orthodox belief because of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So what is Orthodox Christian belief? What is it? Since we have this world today that is filled with so many denominations, there's so many different splits, large splits from the Roman Catholic view, the Eastern Orthodox view, the Protestant groupings, and then under is Orthodox. What are we to believe is sound doctrine? How do we know what's right? How do we understand that we are on the right track? We're on the right path. Is this even possible? And maybe maybe this is part of your frustration, part of where you're at in your spiritual walk is, how do I even know what's right? Well, let me give you four things that I think are helpful for us to guide us into truth, guide us into right doctrine, right orthodox belief. The first thing that we have is God himself, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The helper, as the Holy Spirit is called, the helper, he is there to to guide and to lead you into What? truth. The truth. Now Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples at this point, but this is now true for us as believers. As we have been born again, as we have been changed by the work of the Spirit, we now have that helper. And he's leading us into truth. So if you surrender yourself to the leading and guiding of the Spirit, he will bring you to the truth. In that same chapter, verse 8, Jesus says this, and he... The Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world regarding sin. Now, how does that happen? By the law. And righteousness and judgment. What is the Spirit going to do? The Spirit's going to lead us to truth. He's going to use the law of God. He's going to bring us to righteousness. He's going to show us what judgment, righteous judgment is. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in our world today, in our life today. And so we need to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. We need to allow the Spirit to, to guide our discernment, dis, dis, uh, to lead our understanding to what is accurate, what is true. And in order to have the Holy Spirit, we must be born again. As John would write in John chapter 3, that Jesus tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. You must be different. You must be new. And out of that newness comes new desires, new, new uh, heart wants and, and needs. And there's a rejection of sin. There's a turning away from sin, and embracing of Christ. And in all of this, the Spirit of God is now working in us. And the Spirit has come upon us. That we simply say in that, that we must repent. We must trust in Jesus Christ, in His work on the cross and through the grave. And when someone is born again, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, starts to lead, starts to guide, starts to renew their mind, as Romans twelve two tells us. And this is what the Spirit will do for you, Christian. So, so the first advantage that we have of finding out what, or, what orthodoxy is, is that we a surprise. The Bible itself, the Bible itself, is going to answer the questions that you have of what you should believe, what you should not believe. Now, because we have the Holy Spirit in us as we read the Word of God, we now have new eyes to see these words that are on this page and so the Bible, it has been written and compiled in such a way that everyone that has been born again can comprehend, can understand it. Now, this doesn't mean that you're, you're going to be free from maybe some confusing points or you're still not left with some questions on some things. But in what I mean by this, that you can understand, is that all major tier one salvific issues and way of life situations that are major ones you will have clarity on, you will have understanding in, by just a simple reading of it. Now, with reading the Bible, there should also be, connected with that, and you will see through your reading of the Bible, that you should be reading it in community with other believers. They are there to help you, as the Spirit is there to help you, and to guide you, and to lead you into the truth. So how do we know that we are correctly interpreting the Bible ourselves, Well, we have other people. We have the Spirit. And how do we know that these other people are interpreting the Bible correctly? This leads to the third thing, and that is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. That's a a word that probably you're maybe unfamiliar with. It's a seminary theological kind of word, and it's simply this. It's a method of interpreting the Bible, the, the biblical text. This method of interpreting the Bible, it's, it's reading and understanding the Bible, just as you would understand any other kind of book, and that is in the context in which it was written. The Bible, it's made up of several different genres, styles, even time periods, different situations, and so we must interpret the Bible... Based upon the context in which it was written. So the context of the chapter we're reading, the context of the book that we're reading, the context of the testament that we're reading, the context of the overall themes of the Bible. Now when we read the Bible outside of that, when we're not reading it with the right hermeneutic principle of in its context, we will always be in disagreement with each other and or distort what the Bible actually says. We must use right hermeneutics. Now, all church splits, I would say all denominational splits, have happened because of the misinterpretation of Scripture. When we misread this book, we will come to all kinds of conclusions, and we need the Spirit, we need each other, we need right hermeneutics to get back on track. We will find, as we study through the Bible, that there's many issues that we can easily misunderstand. We can easily take out of context and and think that they mean something other than what they actually do. And we find that there are some things the Bible is silent on. So how do we treat that? Well, we try our best to apply other biblical principles about those things so that we can make the best decisions we can for the context in which we are in. Now, sometimes people claim, well, the Bible's unclear about something or that the Bible's silent on this issue, when in fact that is not true. When, in fact, the Bible has been quite clear on an issue, quite vocal on an issue, it's just that there's been a lack of right hermeneutics in finding it, in finding the clarity that is there. Interpreting the Bible is, it's easy, and it's hard. It's easy to do, because you have the Spirit of God in you, because you read it in the community, and there's things you just don't understand. Let me admit, I don't understand everything in the Bible. I have a whole list of questions I'm making, so whenever I get to heaven, I can ask Jesus specifically. I don't know some of these things, and that's okay. It's okay that you don't fully understand everything. Now, I know for some of you control freaks in the room, you hate that. You wanna know, you wanna know everything. I'm sorry, that's just not how it is. And so we trust. We trust the Spirit, we trust Christ, we trust the Father that we know enough, we know what we need to know, that we have what we have in front of us, and that's for a reason, that's for a purpose. What we need to do, we need to be skeptical of our own understandings, we need to be skeptical of our own convictions, thus allowing others to speak into our life, thus allowing the Spirit to work in our life, so that we would come to a right understanding of the Scripture if we're wrong. Now, this is also why sitting under exegetical preaching is important. The consistent diet of exegetical preaching, which simply means that we go verse by verse, line by line through the scriptures. What this does, this kind of diet, it gives a clear picture of the entire chapter, a clear picture of the book, a clear picture of the overall theme of the scriptures, So walking through a text together collectively then should lead to talking about that text and talking about it in community. And this is why we encourage you to be in life groups. We want you to be in life groups because this is one of the best ways that we have, anyways, for you to go deeper with what you've been hearing, with what you've been studying, with what you've been reading on your own life groups. It will help you deepen your relationships, your fellowship with other people in this church. It also gives you an opportunity, an opportunity to discuss what has been said on a Sunday morning, what has been said in this gathering time. It lets you ask the questions that maybe you've been wrestling with, you've been fighting through, and and you just need answers for, and you can't seem to find them, and you've been struggling and wrestling and Now you have an avenue to ask that. I have no idea what Todd was saying Sunday, and nobody else in the group does, and so we need to ask him. So you designate that one person in your group, your leader, like, hey, go ask the pastor this question. We have no idea what he's saying. Um, And that's good. That's right. And sometimes I'll respond with, yeah, that was really unclear, wasn't it? That wasn't very good. Let me try again. And then I can correct course and and try to teach more clearly. We want you to be in life groups. So if you're not, I would ask you to prayerfully consider being part of one and do that today. The fourth thing I think is helpful for us in understanding orthodoxy and understanding right belief, right doctrine is history. History can be helpful. It can be helpful to our understanding. It can be helpful in guiding us into what is is consistent, what has been consistent, orthodox Christian belief. And as you study church history, you will find that there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. You will find there's some doctrines that were really neglected or undiscovered or wrestled with or argued against or fought against or fought for. And all this is helpful to us coming to a right understanding of doctrine also what we will see through church history. And if you study this, you will find that a lot of the arguments that we have today, a lot of the issues that we have today, have already been dealt with multiple times in the last 2,000 years. We have wrestled through these things multiple times, and again, we've just forgotten because we neglect the study of history to understand what has already been dealt with, what has already been wrestled with. So in doing this, we, we study the who, the what, the why, the how, and And whether these things got resolved or whether they didn't, whether it's ongoing. And this is why, this is why there were things like creeds and confessions and catechisms that were formed because there was answers coming out of these things, these tensions and these arguments, these debates. There was answers that were given. And so let me talk about these things briefly: creeds and confessions. They are the distilling down of key key truths that have been given a great deal of thought, a great deal of examination. And so then they were published and made known to churches. And now not all creeds, not all confessions are the same because of context, because of when and why they were written, where they originated out of. These can, can sometimes be very helpful. They can give a lot of clarity sometimes about a very specific theological view. And sometimes it leaves you with more questions. Another thing that I think is helpful in history, and that is catechisms. And they are the systematic teaching tools that would be used to lead students to a systematic understanding of a doctrinal truth. Now, as Baptists, we often have a knee-jerk reaction to catechisms because it sounds too Catholic, and we don't like that, and so we, we don't use those. But I think it would be wise of Baptist churches to get back to the practice of, and they used to practice, catechisms, in Baptist church leads to a great understanding. Question one, answer one. Question two, answer two. It's, it's a very simple, systematic way of understanding doctrinal truth. And I think it could be very helpful in doing that in understanding Scripture. A third thing I think is helpful inside of understanding history, that is reading the dead guys. Reading the past saints. I think another way as we read through history, we study through history, is we read about these saints that have fought, that have died. We read about their stories. We read their books. We read their writings. And we start to gain a better understanding of what they had thought, how they had handled these ideas, these these theological difficulties. There's so many men and women that have suffered and even died because of their convictions. And there's a lot that we can learn from them. This doesn't mean that they were all right or they were all wrong. But we should be reading carefully, taking note carefully of what they were saying, how they fought and struggled with these things. And the struggle of these saints as they've gone by, it it can lead us to seeing more clearly today how Orthodox Christian belief should be. So that's all kind of the first part of Paul's reasons as why. So as he says there in verse 9, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. How do we find sound doctrine? I think those four things are helpful to get us to that point. We, we still wrestle and, and fight and, and try to uh, get to a right understanding of those things collectively, corporately, denominationally. And now the second thing that Paul lists there is also to rebuke those who contradict it. Also to rebuke. So it's to give instruction to the church, but also to rebuke those that contradict it. Now notice he didn't say in the church specifically, but it does mean those in the church, but also I would argue even those outside. Paul tells Titus to use his sound doctrine to be critical of those that don't have sound doctrine, those that are leading others into contradictions of sound doctrine. Now, does this rebuke mean it has to be public? Like, um, you know, posting things up on a billboard, like so-and-so believes this, how dare they? Uh, no, doesn't necessarily have to be a public thing, or even from the pulpit that it has to be declared publicly to rebuke somebody. I think most of the time an elder is going to be rebuking people in their unsound doctrine in a private setting, in a behind-closed-door setting. And most of the rebuke that we're going to have to do as elders is going to be in that context or in a small group context, or sometimes even publicly. Now, who, who holds an elder in check to make sure he is not contradicting sound doctrine? How do we know that he's not the one that's at fault? Well, this is where the plurality of elders comes in. Other elders help give support here. The plurality of elders is important in a church setting. And this helps alleviate the burden on a pastor, but also it gives comfort to the congregation that they are not being ruled by a tyrant. Now, who holds the elders in check? So there's not just a complete tyrannical government of the church. Who keeps them in check? The congregation. The congregation does this. A church member has responsibilities. It's not just to show up. I mean, that is a responsibility of you. But one of the responsibilities that you have as a church member is to be submissive to the leadership of the church, but also to listen carefully to what they're teaching. Carefully because you're trying to grow in holiness, grow in righteousness, but also you need to listen carefully, take note carefully, because there might be something that is wrong and if it's enough wrong, like a top-tier issue wrong, there needs to be a correction of that, and who, who can challenge? Paul gives instruction that this needs to be brought up, this needs to be brought to, uh, to the leadership, the leadership's attention addressed in the proper channel of these things. The congregation has this kind of responsibility. Now, let me ask this question. What about other churches in our denomination? that start to teach contradictory doctrine that's opposed to Scripture? What do we do with them? This church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. What about other churches in our denomination that that waver and wander away from what the Scriptures teach? What do we need to do? Well, they need rebuked. They, They need rebuked by the denomination. And all that rebuke is to bring about correction, of course. And if need be, there needs to be a removal from the denomination. This is one of the benefits of being part of a denomination to hold other churches accountable who are wandering from the authoritative understanding of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. Let me give you a very real life, current event, real situation that's happening right now. Most of you know Rick Warren. Most of you know his books. Uh, Most of you know that he is pastor of Saddleback Church in California. And on the 9th of this month at Saddleback, they decided to ordain three women into the office of pastor, which is something that the scriptures, I think, clearly teach against. Paul tells us in his writings that this is not the proper role of women in the church. The position of overseer, of pastor, of elder, this is for men. And Paul lays this out in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, which comes right before 1 Timothy 3, where he then gives qualifications for eldership in the church. Now, there's a couple of terms that I want you to be familiar with, at least gain a little bit of an ism, and complementarianism. Those are big isms, I get it. Egalitarianism is this. Is a theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and society. Now, complementarianism is this. It holds to the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, They are created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. The issue of allowing the ordination of women into the office of elder or pastor is an issue of morality, not ability. Morality, not ability. This has nothing to do with gender inequality. Our culture has this thinking that equality equals morality and that is not accurate it's not an issue of can it's an issue of should not can they teach not can they lead it's the question of should who determines the should who who, who determines the order of the home god does who determines the order of the church god does it's not an issue of can. It's an issue of should. Now, what we teach here at First Baptist is complementarianism. We believe that men and women are equal in worth. They're both made in the image of God. The imago Dei is true for, for both of us, but we have distinct roles to play in the home and in the church They should complement each other. We believe that the Bible is clear on this point and that the office of elder is limited to the biblical qualified men that are there in that church. And this is the view that the Southern Baptist Convention has had and has maintained for years, decades, hundreds of years, maybe not quite hundreds, 180 some years, This is a clear statement that comes out of this little booklet by the Southern Baptist Convention. That is the Baptist Faith and Message, the 2000 revision. This is the statement of faith in which all Southern Baptist churches uh, adhere to, to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in Roman numeral 6 of this booklet, it states that this, this role, this position, this office in the church is specifically for men. That statement that is there out of that little booklet does not come as, as some sort of hierarchy of men and in, in trying to have some sort of oppression. It comes from the scripture. It gives reference to this one. So this statement that the espoir with the it has been consistent and what Saddleback has not been consistent is with scripture or with the Southern Baptist denomination. And so just because they're one of the largest churches in the denomination does not mean that they're exempt from accountability. This goes to the largest of churches or to the smallest of churches. And so the SBC convention that's going to be held next month where I will be attending at that convention, there will be churches like Saddleback that have stepped out of line with Scripture and outside of the convention, and they will need to be dealt with. There needs to be rebuke. The responsibility of other SBC churches like ours is to help guard against bad doctrine, is to help guard the integrity of the denomination and the integrity of God's Word. How is the denomination held accountable? It's simple. It's the individual local churches that do that individual local churches like ours that preach and teach the inerrancy of Scripture, that hold to the trustworthy Word of God, it comes back to us. It comes back to you. It comes back to the elders of this church. We must be diligent, diligent here at this church that we are constantly developing and growing men for the office of elder. We must be diligent in our work to see men and women discipled well and underst- understanding these things well. And this issue that the Southern Baptists are facing this year is nothing new to the denomination. This is something that's repeated throughout history of the Southern Baptist Convention. In an article that was written the day after the ordination at Saddleback, Dr. Al Mohler, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, he is quoted as saying this, There never was a moment when more than a handful of women served as pastors of SBC churches. But the mainline Protestant denominations were rushing headlong into the ordination of women as pastors and Episcopal priests, driven by two major energies. First, the demands of second-wave feminism. And second, the impulses unleashed by liberation theology, he argued. In both cases, the main obstacle was the Bible. But already compromised by theological liberalism, these denominations deployed revisionist arguments to diffuse any argument from Scripture. The strategies of biblical subversion also took two basic forms. The argument was proffered that either the Bible was misread by Christians for nearly 2,000 years, or... The Bible is just hopelessly mired in patriarchy. And Muller argues that denominations that have adopted liberal theology have brought about a feminization of liberal Protestantism, which has been like the kiss of death for them. You know this saying, right? History repeats itself. Why does it repeat itself? Because we didn't learn something. Because we keep forgetting. Because we keep ignoring. We need to be vigilant against repeated attacks against the trustworthy word of God. Who is the front line to do this? The eldership of the church. Who is to back them up? The congregation. We must hold to sound doctrine. We must fight for sound doctrine as elders and as a church. Which means calling out bad doctrine. This can happen. Easily in the denomination where there's over 46,000, 48,000 SBC churches. It can also happen quite subtly here where we can get off track and we can start to miss Orthodox Christian belief. We need to understand what is the trustworthy word of God and it starts with your elders and it should, should be growing in you as well. Elders must be sound in their doctrine. They must be capable to teach and the congregation must appreciate that. Let me give you three things as we close here and give you some time to reflect. One, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that your elders would seek out and find what is sound doctrine. You would pray for them. Two, for you men, do you think you have what it takes to be an elder? Is there, through these four weeks, is there starting to be a desire in you to move toward in that way? Is there something that God's doing in your heart, saying, you know what, I've been just a a lazy slob and I need to get something right. I need to move forward. I need to exercise these things that I'm seeing here in Titus 1. I I need to move toward that. And then for all of us, how can you help encourage your elders? How can you help encourage them to to hold firm to the trustworthy Word of God? It's so easy for us to find things that we disagree with, that we just don't like and our preferences get in the way and we can easily complain, but when's the last time that you encouraged your elders into the truth, into what they are doing and trying to accomplish, and encourage them to, to maintain course in those things? Let me give you just a few moments to, to pray silently where you're at. To, if you want to come to the front and pray, you're welcome to do that as well. And then I'll pray for us, and we'll sing one final song.